Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Paris, host of New Books in Finance, a channel of the New Books Network. My guest today is Binya Applebaum, uh, editorial board member for the New York Times and author of The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. The book just was published uh, this year, uh, just recently by Little Brown. Uh, Binya, thank you so much for uh, joining me on the show. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're your work is is wonderfully clearly written. Uh, it it's, uh, really shows uh, people who are not necessarily full time economists or uh, more you know observers or uh, participants in the economy rather than uh, full time students of it. Uh, uh, insight and window into uh, what is in the media a great deal in uh, you know talking about economists and their policies and how they affect their lives. It's it's a, a lot of material, and I, I thought maybe we could kind of break it into a couple sections that will uh, allow the the reader to understand you know this very very rich narrative that you've brought to the fore. And the the first part, which is really interesting, is that you know we're all familiar with. The role of these high-profile economists. The uh, Nobel Prize in Economics for this year was just just announced uh, uh, this week, and uh, but that was not always the case. In fact, the notion and role of economists and their role in public policy was was uh, nil essentially for for decades and decades and decades. Do you want to describe a little bit of where they were so that we can understand how far they've come? Absolutely. Yeah. My book actually opens with the story of a young economist in the early 1950s who worked in the bowels of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. And his job was basically to prepare numbers for the people who actually made decisions at the Fed. And he came home one night and told his wife that he didn't really see a future for an economist at the Fed. There wasn't a role for an economist to play and to grow there. Uh, and he wasn't wrong about that at the time. The, the Fed's board did not include any economists. It was comprised of financial market types in Iowa, hog farmer, bankers, but, but no economists. The head of the Fed at that time actually told a visitor uh, that he kept a few economists, but he kept them in the basement because they asked good questions, but they didn't know their own limitations. And so at that time in the early 1950s, economists really were very peripheral figures in American policymaking. Well, that young man's name was Paul Volcker. And by the end of the 1970s, he was running the Federal Reserve. And today the Fed is the nation's and probably the world's largest employer of economists. So that in sort of in one life is is the arc of the narrative. In in my own profession, which is investment management, almost identical situation, stock analysts who for better or for worse, and they share somewhat of the fate of the economists, stock analysts are only um, on the sell side, only recently, shall we say, rock stars or perceived to be very, very important people uh, through the 30s, 40s and 50s. They were called statisticians and they, too, were kept kept in the business. And then we can determine jointly as we go through this interview, whether their rise from the from the basement to the to the front pages and onto the television has been a, a good thing uh, or not. Um, you you do describe how they move from that, those academic settings. And one of the things that's very engaging about the book is the personalities. These are 
individuals. They're not just theories. They have uh, relations. They have backgrounds. They come from the Midwest. They come from the Northeast. They experience that uh, one, one uh, you know, prejudice or benefit or another. A- any of the particular stories, there are two that come to mind, one that's present and one that is absent. And I'll let you guess who is absent. But uh, uh, highlights of the individual personalities that you, you, you might think would you know, uh, help readers uh, understand these, although it's a lot of formulas coming their way that, uh, though not in your book per se, but that uh, these are coming from real people. You know, I, I, one of the most fascinating people who I encountered in the course of researching this book, someone who I had known nothing about was a man named Walter Oi, uh, who was the child of, of Japanese immigrants, grew up on the West Coast, was held in an internment camp during World War II, uh, but, you know, managed after the war to, to find academic success, uh, ended up at UCLA and began to lose his vision. And by the time he graduated from UCLA, he really couldn't tell the difference between night and day anymore. But he continued to pursue a doctorate in economics uh, at the University of Chicago, obtained his Ph.D., uh, and built a successful career as an academic economist while being completely blind. He had a phenomenal memory. He dictated equations to his wife and to specially trained assistants. And Boy is an important figure in history because he did the work that really convinced President Nixon to end military conscription in the United States in the early 1970s. So this this blind economist uh, who would, you know, for entertainment, he would go to the racetrack just to experience the roar of the cars because he couldn't actually see them. Uh, you know, he played this critical role in our history. He is a big part of the reason that today we have an all volunteer army uh, and that young men are required to register for the draft, but they're no longer at any risk of actually being drafted. So there, you know, there's all of these fantastic figures in the book, but Oi really sticks with me partially because his story is not well known and partially because it's just so remarkable. Indeed. And again, readers will, will want to look at, frankly, because there are dozens of these stories, uh, in in uh, the Economist's Hour, uh, and they're maybe not as all as interesting as uh, as always, but they're they're uh, certainly noteworthy. The one one figure looms uh, visibly, as it were, above uh, the others, though, and it kind of gets into subsequent parts of the book that I want to discuss. But uh, you know, there's no way around Milton Friedman in in a book about the rise of uh, macroeconomics, particularly a particular type of macroeconomics in the post-war period. Yeah, I think Milton Friedman was the most influential economist of the 20th century. Certainly his impact on American life was unparalleled. Uh, he really, uh, he, he's a remarkable guy to start with. You know, he grew up, he was, you know, educated during the Great Depression, uh, a period when many of his peers were concluding that the government needed to be much more actively involved in managing the economy. Uh, But Friedman parted ways with that consensus from a very early point in his career. He began to argue uh, that government was the problem and that government needed to get out of the way and allow the economy to grow without interference. He was this small man uh, who filled a room, Uh, brilliant debater. One of his friends liked to say that the best way to argue with Milton was to wait until he left the room, because then you'd actually have a chance of winning. Um, you know, vibrant personality, very outgoing, very good at explaining economic concepts. Clearly, he became famous as a first as a columnist for Newsweek and later as the star of a, of a 10 part series on PBS that 
uh, in the early 1980s introduced many Americans to the free market, to the argument for free market economics. And Friedman just looms over this century because so many of his ideas uh, reshaped public policy. He was involved in, in ending the draft. Uh, he was involved in ending the uh, the post-war system of exchange rates known as the Bretton Woods Agreement. He was a forefather of charter schools. Uh, he created the earned income tax credit. His footprint is really remarkable. The number of areas in which he influenced public policy is really quite remarkable. And for for listeners who probably know what the Chicago School is, but might not really understand that, that uh, Milton Friedman ended up at the University of Chicago, uh, Stigler, Aaron Director, uh, and they formed uh, a trio, among others, that that creates what we now know as the Chicago School, you know, many, many decades later. Had he ended up at some other institution, we could be talking about the the Duke School or the, you know, University of Texas School. But uh, these individuals gathered in, at, at the University of Chicago, and that's why uh, it, it's the Chicago model that we're basically operating under. Uh, that's right. So the one economist, though, I'm going to, you know, depart this, the script here for a little bit. The one economist who's missing, he's referenced, of course, numerous times in the book, but the, the equally uh, significant um, uh, talent, uh, perhaps an even better writer, uh, and maybe a nicer person, uh, Paul Samuelson, seems in the battle of the of the models that you describe in this book and have been described in many others it's not that he doesn't participate but he he doesn't appear to be uh fully signed on to one side or another he's clearly more on the well, the 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 salt water versus the the freshwater team which we'll get to in a moment but uh you know from my experience in the uh, uh investment theory history. Samuelson looms very, very large as well. And he had a big, big personality. And I, I was kind of wondering whether there was uh, kind of a logic behind him not having as prominent a role in this. So Paul Samuelson is a really important figure in the history of economics and in the history of American economics in the 20th century in particular. For much of the 20th century, if you had asked economists who the most important economist in America was, Paul Samuelson would have been the obvious choice. He defined the mainstream consensus. Perhaps most importantly, he was the author of the standard economics textbook that pretty much everyone used in their Econ 101 classes. And so generations of students were inculcated in his view of economics. He began writing it in the early 1950s and kept on writing it. You know, it remained the top selling book into the 1990s. And so for a half a century, basically, this book defined the mainstream of American economics. Samuelson is hugely important in economics, but what is significant about him uh, is partially uh, what, what I find so important about him is the way in which his views were shifted over time by Milton Friedman. So what he embodies more than anything else is the way in which mainstream economics departed from its post-war assumptions, which basically prioritized a, a large role for the state in managing the economy. And were gradually pulled in the direction of Friedman's ideas. Uh, and so Samuelson, for me, is not a central figure in this narrative because he was not the engine of these changes. He was sort of the, the measuring stick by which those changes can be judged. He's part of a very important phenomenon, which is the degree to which these Friedman ideas, which began as uh, you know, right-wing ideas came to be mainstream, came to be embraced by the Paul Samuelsons of economics. By and Samuelson was a card-carrying member of the Democratic Party's establishment, 
you know, how these ideas became essentially bipartisan. I, I also, at least in my space, uh, Samuelson is just a voice of common sense and reason. If somebody comes up with an idea, it better be airtight because he could poke holes in ideas pretty quickly uh, concerning investment uh, returns and, and markets and so forth. And and so uh, I, I just I found him as you you know maybe as you say kind of the measure of the of of the middle that uh, if Paul Samuelson accepts it it's it's probably a good thing that type it will get wide wide currency in uh, in economics. But it is fun. He's not on the front lines of these fights. On that, we can we could. Uh, well, he agree. was, but he lost them. I mean, the, the point is not so much that he wasn't on the front lines, although Samuelson was always wary of involving himself in public policy debates. He kept a distance from Washington. Uh, he reserved, you know, some of many of his contemporaries were much more directly involved in trying to shape the views of politicians and policymakers. Samuelson always saw his role as being a little bit more removed from from the political debate. But the fact of the matter is that he he lost many of the defining debates of the 20th century. He at times mocked Friedman, argued that Friedman was wrong, uh, argued that Friedman was misguided. Uh, One of the greatest examples of this, one probably Milton Friedman's most important triumph is his success in convincing policymakers that the central bank, the Federal Reserve, should play the primary role in regulating, in modulating the economy, in in responding to economic downturns and controlling the pace of growth. This is now so standard that the idea that it's controversial almost seems funny, but the Fed was a marginalized institution at the beginning of this period, and it's really because of Friedman that it came to be the central player in economic policymaking. Well, you you can chart that evolution in Paul Samuelson's textbooks because in his first edition, he described the Fed as a marginal player. And by the 1990s, he was just preaching Friedman's line. And I think that's really the story uh, of Paul Samuelson's trajectory is, is he ended up agreeing with Milton Friedman. And again, for the reasons without getting too far into monetary theory, you want to summarize, you know, Milton, Theor- Milton Friedman has the view about the Fed uh, because the Fed has a window and a mechanism for affecting monetary theory, which is how Milton Friedman sees economies expanding and contracting is through the money supply. Yeah, Friedman, this idea was called monetarism. And, and it basically, Friedman basically preached the idea that the one thing a government should do to manage economic growth is to increase the supply of money at a steady pace, uh, and that everything else was just going to cause problems. Uh, trying to spend more money in a downturn, trying to cut taxes to goose growth, any of these standard, what we call Keynesian tactics to, to manage economic growth were ultimately counterproductive. Uh, what you wanted to do was just keep things simple in the face of uncertainty. Uh, he argued that a computer program should replace the Federal Reserve. It should just be programmed to increase the money supply. And that that's really all the government should be doing. Isn't that a little bit what Bitcoin's, in theory, founders created, which was a 2% a year increase in the supply, something like that, to uh, a, a computer version of, of uh, Friedman's monetarism, is that the supply of Bitcoin would go up by a set amount each year and everyone would know that set amount, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is there is absolutely a similarity. So in any case, the Milton Friedman story and and the Paul Friedman story at a personal level, along with the stories of many of the other economists who are making their way from the basement are, are really well uh, described in your book. And again, there, many of the characters are, are, are quite sympathetic and would make the book interesting on its own. But what I think is is very important for readers to understand, and you've 
referenced a few of them, but these economists coming out of the basement affected the lives and affect the lives of all of us today. And I put together just a very partial list of issues in which academic economists and then public policy economists, which you cover and pretty much anyone listening can uh, acknowledge that it's it's touched or in theory has touched your life. You mentioned conscription, uh, the level of taxes and government spending. I'm literally going through this. Different ways to control inf- uh, inflation, uh, levels of unemployment, management of unemployment, inflation and price stability, uh, tax cuts, which you characterize as political triumph and economic failure. We'll get that to uh, a moment. Deregulation of phone service, air service, trucking, a patent, uh, concentration monopolies and antitrust, or in this case, anti-antitrust privatization in the UK and in many other countries kind of uh, emerging or second world economies uh, in the 80s and 90s. And finally, and, and in many ways uh, kind of disturbing, but everyone can realize this, putting a dollar value on individual lives. So for people who, who might think that um, these economists are engaged in academic arguments that don't really affect people other than themselves. The Economist's Hour, both your book and the reality, uh, make it quite clear the contrary, that all of our lives have been affected by these arguments. Therefore, it is worth following these arguments. I may have skipped a few of those points, uh, but I think I hit most most of the areas of the, um, uh, you know, the real world impact. Yeah. Uh, Go on. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, the reason that I'm passionate about writing about economics is because it is so important. It does shape our lives in so many ways and such important ways. Uh, and a lot of people don't realize that. And so part of my hope is that this book serves to illuminate that reality. And so, uh, which I think it does uh, very, very well. Again, if you're not, you know, if you have a mortgage, <laughs> if you have a bank account, if you have a CD, um any any sort of uh, financial engagement, it has been uh, shaped by by economists over the past half century how it's thought about. Let's shift to that half century. Let's shift to the two models. This is you know kind of crude historical approach, but you have macroeconomics broadly being created. Uh, there are, are, are precursors, but kind of the big coming out for macroeconomics, even though it wasn't called that in the time, is 1936 with John Maynard Keynes. And then, as you point out, Samuelson uh, post-war. And you you have, again, uh, broadly speaking, two schools. You have the Keynesian school of macroeconomics. He gets he gets to, it's called Keynesian because he created and and macroeconomics is, you know, came out of his work substantially. And as the uh, you know, for the first three or four decades, uh, it actually macroeconomics has a Keynesian framework. Uh, uh, then there's the shift. But let's let's uh, go back and describe what we'll call it pre-1969, pre-1970 macroeconomics from a policy perspective and an academic perspective that we then move away from uh, under the Chicago School. When the Great Depression strikes the United States, the government of the United States literally has no idea how large the American economy is. Uh, or how bad the damage is. Uh, and Simon it, Kuznets. It hires Simon Kuznets to figure that out. And Simon Kuznets is an economist, and his job is to measure the size of the American economy. And he comes back to Congress two years later and says, this is how big it, use, it is now, and it, it used to be considerably bigger. Uh, and that is, is the origin of what we now call GDP, gross domestic product. That measurement is really the first time that the government has... 
uh, its hands around the entire economy and can say, here's this thing. And once they know what it is, then they can begin to think about managing it. And the guy who really articulates the first philosophy of how a government should manage an economy is John Maynard Keynes. And uh, what we call Keynesian economics is rooted in his set of prescriptions, which basically argue that that an economy left to its own devices is not self-correcting. It will get into trouble. It will not maximize output. There will be people left without jobs. And, and the job of government uh, is to plug those holes, to invest in the economy, uh, to pump in money when there's not enough, uh, to invest when private companies are reluctant to invest, and in this way to maximize prosperity and to avoid a repeat of the Great Depression. Uh, and this philosophy, particularly in the aftermath of the Great Depression, has tremendous appeal. And, and for several decades after the end of World War II, uh, policymakers in the West are, to greater or lesser degrees, guided by this conviction uh, that they have the knowledge and the ability to manage economic growth. And I have to tell you, as a and that's a great summary of, of Keynesian economics. And, and uh, I have to tell you, as a uh, investor, I, I grapple with the shortcomings of GDP. And people take GDP much like people might assume the Fed has this high high role, even though it didn't in the past. People assume GDP is a given. In fact, GDP was the creation in the 1930s when we had an agrarian and, and industrial economy. GDP does very poorly with productivity and service. It's not really well set up for the current economy. So as we in the investment community try to figure out what these GDP or other GDP figures uh, signify, the fact is we're, we're wrestling with a, a 1930s model and uh, it's not really set up for the economy that we, we currently have. And that makes it uh, all, all the more interesting and, and, and frankly, difficult. Um, the height, you, you characterize the Kennedy years as the height of Keynesian uh, economics. Uh, do you want to, you know, I, I'm trying to remember which of the economists that you, you characterize. He, uh, Kennedy calls him up. And uh, the economist and says, uh, I need you to come to Washington. The economist says, listen, I'm more of a white uh, uh, ivory tower uh, economist. And uh, Kennedy answers, that's all right, because I'm an ivory tower president. Okay. So uh, uh, this was in the 1960s. It's the height of Keynesianism. That's Yale's James Tobin, who has that exchange with, with President Kennedy. But the guy who proves to be most important is actually a guy named Walter Heller. Uh, he's a Midwestern economist. One of his contemporaries calls him a colonel in the Keynesian army, meaning he's not one of the leading figures, but he happens to meet Kennedy. Kennedy comes on a campaign swing through Minneapolis and Teller, who has a passing acquaintance uh, with Hubert Humphrey, uh, gets an invitation to go down to the campaign hotel and Humphrey introduces him to Kennedy and the two men fall into conversation and for whatever reason, they strike it off uh, and Kennedy invites him to come back to Washington. Uh, and so Heller goes to Washington. And at the time, the idea of an economist as an important figure in an administration is still new. Uh, when Heller tells an acquaintance that he's going to be Kennedy's chief economic advisor, the acquaintance responds, oh, will you do the job from Minneapolis or will you have to move from to move to Washington? Uh, mm -hmm. Figuring that maybe it's part time work, or, you know, just you don't actually need to be there. But Heller goes and he is central in convincing Kennedy to really embrace the idea that the government can aggressively work to maximize economic growth by cutting taxes, by spending more money on anti-poverty programs. And for a while in the 1960s, it really seems to be working. Growth is supercharged under Kennedy and then under Johnson. 
Uh, we still remember it as a golden age, uh, but by the end of that decade, uh, things are breaking down. And so that's that's where we have the transition from, uh, you know, the 1960s is a turbulent period uh, across the country in many areas. It's also and maybe because of that turbulence, I, I, I don't know if I would make such a strong claim, but uh, uh, coincidental with that turbulence, we begin to have the Chicago school with a different approach to managing economic issues at the national level and policy issues across the board come to the fore and begin to make inroads into into um, uh, Washington, D.C., Wall Street, and so forth. Uh, it's an oversimplification of the Chicago versus the rest, but you have actually some nice metaphors in there. Again, the freshwater economists are from the Midwest, uh, specifically around Chicago, versus the saltwater economists, what's left of the Keynesian school, which would be on the East Coast, specifically kind of MIT and and uh, Harvard. Um, you, do you want to describe the transition, uh, the rise of the, of the Chicago school as a we know they've been writing busily in the 1950s in Chicago, but their success in, in, in Washington and New York. Milton Friedman has a really nice line where he says that the way that economists influence policymakers uh, is by providing options and making sure those options are ready to go in the hour of need. So when the policymaker goes to the fridge and opens it up, he finds Milton Friedman's ideas waiting for him, basically. And and what happens in the early 1970s is that it's it's pretty clear that something is wrong with the American economy. Uh, growth is faltering. Unemployment is rising. Inflation is also rising. There's this sense at the time the bogeyman was Japan rather than China, but there's this sense that, that America is falling behind foreign countries. Uh, and people are worried and policymakers are increasingly looking for new solutions. Uh, there's a woman named Juanita Kreps, who's the Commerce Secretary in the Carter administration at the end of the 1970s. She's also a professor of economics at Duke University, a thoroughgoing Keynesian. And she resigns from the Carter administration because she says she's become frustrated with their inability to grapple with these problems. And she also resigns as a professor at Duke University because she says that she no longer knows what to teach her students. And so that's really the crisis in, in the economics profession in the 1970s. They've lost confidence in their ability to manage the economy. And it's in that vacuum that people begin to turn to the ideas of Milton Friedman, which have, I think, importantly, an appealing modesty. Friedman doesn't say, I want to be the new hands-on manager of the economy. He says, you all have been making a mistake. No one is equipped to do this job. What you need to do is take your hands off the economy and allow markets to control the allocation of resources. We've already talked about the first place that this really takes hold, which is the elimination of military conscription, uh, which is uh, really an idea that was sold to Nixon by free market economists. Uh, the second place it takes hold, uh, which is also the fruit of Friedman's work, uh, is that he and his allies convince Richard Nixon to end the Bretton Woods Agreement uh, and to allow the dollar. The Bretton Woods Agreement basically fixed the value of the dollar in relation to foreign currencies. It was intended to create a stable system to support global trade. And Friedman and his allies, notably George Schultz, who was then the Treasury Secretary, the first economist to serve as Treasury Secretary, convinced Nixon uh, that he should take the United States off of that standard and let the dollar float. And that's really the beginning of this economist's hour. And uh, the uh, the the you know the in, in investment 
thinking at the same time, I used a, a metaphor there, then the absence of a workable system, the Chicago model was elegant and simple. Modern portfolio theory and rational uh, actor theory applied to markets is the exact same thing. And in my own written work, I basically said the same thing you did, that it wasn't because it was an absolutely compelling theory. It's because in the 1970s, when investment theory, when investment practice was utterly destroyed, we had two recessions, the market was down by 50%. Investors started, professional investors started looking for a model because they're prior model, which wasn't Keynesian, it was actually more or less nothing. They said, we need we need some outside help here. Maybe these academics know what they're up to. And the, the academics, which had a fully uh, packaged uh, model ready to go, whether it was right or wrong, it was easy to explain, easy to implement, was uh, modern portfolio theory, which is ultimately uh, in its application, uh, is a, a derivative of, of the Chicago model. They had a nice product. It looked good. And you know, 40, 50 years later, we can judge whether it worked well, but it looked good to, to implement in confusing times. So there, there does seem to be some parallel there. Uh, the Chicago... Uh, the the market orientation, the Chicago school, you know, do you want to provide sort of some highlights or maybe because we'll shift then to our, our the judgment section here, highlights and lowlights of Chicago's successes. You have one uh, very, very good line, as I mentioned about, you know, political success and an economic failure. But the Chicago model gets a lot done in the last 30 years as you know uh, you started with conscription um, but there there are so many areas where you know whether it's aviation again and trucking uh, deregulation antitrust there are just so many good examples there where this approach of markets really played out in the marketplace I think of this as the story of a revolution that went too far so there were real problems in the economy. And the Chicago School economists and a lot of other economists who didn't affiliate themselves intellectually with the Chicago School, but shared uh, a basic view that that markets needed to play a larger role, uh, were enormously successful uh, in convincing policymakers to give the market more room to breathe. And that had some really important benefits. One of the clearest areas uh, is the deregulation of, of transportation. Uh, in the mid-century, everything about flying on an airline was regulated by a board of bureaucrats here in Washington, D.C. They controlled uh, where an airline could fly, how much it could charge, even what it could be served on the airplane. Uh, and that was really constricting the growth of aviation, which was essentially limited to the wealthy. Uh, the deregulation of airlines under the Carter administration, uh, which was overseen by an economist named Alfred Kahn, uh, really opened up the skies. Americans today fly eight times more often on average than Americans in the 1960s. Fares are much lower. Airlines are safe. Uh, the comfort isn't there, but that was the deal. We voted with our feet that we didn't want comfort. We wanted low fares and we got what we wanted. So that's a success story for the most part. Uh, and there are others like it. Deregulation, uh, the uh, you know the the move away from the regulation of telecommunications similarly similarly opened up competition. Uh, these were undoubted good things in the economy. Um, what happens over time is that that revolution goes too far. Economists uh, and their ideas convince government to reduce investment, which over time slows the pace of economic growth. Uh, they emphasize efficiency rather than equality. They really argue that. Policymakers should not be concerned about the distribution of economic resources, and that is a key reason for the rise of economic inequality. And I think that the growth of inequality 
uh, is an important reason that our democracy is struggling. The idea of we the people is under strain because we have less and less in common. Okay, well, let's let's uh, get then to the crux of the matter. Um, you said that uh, you know it went too far, uh, and as the book goes on, but uh, you know, underlying much of it is is you know your argument that you said, listen, in in the aftermath of this experiment of this shift, uh, inequality is worse than it would otherwise would have been. Growth is worse than it otherwise would have been. Crashes are worse than they otherwise would have been. Again, a political success, an academic success, I suppose, but but an economic failure. And you know, f- it's hard to be neutral on these matters. And and uh, it, you know, you're you're not, and that's great. It makes it a, a co- sort of a combative uh, ending uh, to the book. Do you want to you know describe the high points of uh, of where you think the Chicago model really has has sort of failed us. I think the most important, uh, I think there's three areas that are really important and I I just touched on them, but I'll I'll elaborate briefly. The first is, you know, that the basic premise of this approach is that reliance on markets would produce greater prosperity. And it has not. Uh, Average growth adjusted for population size has declined in the United States in each decade since the 1960s. Uh, what's remembered as our last golden era in the 1990s was really the final hurrah for uh, the older program of government management of the economy. We entered the 1990s with the most educated workforce in the developed world, uh, with huge, with the fruits of huge government investment in technology, the internet, which was the product of government investment in basic research and military expenditures. Uh, you know, and and on the back of those investments, we experienced prosperity, but we stopped planting the orchard. And so today, when people look around and say, why is growth so slow? Well, a big part of the reason is that we stopped planting new trees. And so we're no longer in a position to harvest the fruit. That's number one. Number two is inequality. Uh, economists really made a big mistake about inequality. They really argued in the mid-century two things that proved to be wrong. The first was that there was a trade-off between inequality and growth, that if you tried to limit inequality uh, through redistribution, through equality of opportunity, it would come at the expense of economic growth. Your economy would grow more slowly. And the second is, if you allowed inequality and just focused on growth, that wouldn't be so bad. As long as all the ships were rising, it didn't really matter if some were rising more quickly than others. And both of those things have turned out to be badly wrong. Uh, In the first place, uh, we are learning, and um, we now have decades of sort of real experience with this. We have a lot of data all of a sudden about inequality, and we're learning that inequality is bad for growth, that high levels of inequality actually impede economic activity. Uh, and, and secondly, we're learning that, you know, as a consequence, inequality is not indifferent. It, it actually is bad. It's bad for the people who are experiencing it, and it's bad for society as a whole. Uh, and the third point is uh, sort of follows from that, and, and it is that one way in which inequality is proving to be harmful is that it is undermining our ability to govern ourselves uh, by by not just tolerating, but sort of you know encouraging blithely high levels of inequality. We've created a society in which we lack the common ground that is necessary for democratic governance, and I think that's really straining our ability to govern ourselves. So the the uh, financial crisis 2008, um, 2009, 2007, 
kind of puts a bookmark, you could argue, to the 40 years from 1969, say, to, to uh, 2009, roughly, 40 years of Chicago dominance. It raises an issue, which you know you, you take up at the end, about the last 10 years, uh, uh, mostly con- under a Democratic administration, but then under a Republican administration. So from 2008 to 2016, uh, Democratic administration, uh, a very, very different administration uh, from, from uh, 2016 on, 17 on. Uh, you know, where, where, where are we now and where do you think we're heading? Uh, has the, in effect, has the pendulum swung back a little bit? Or under the last few years, it might have under the Obama administration, but then it seems to have swung away again. It's a little bit confusing right now. We're, we're living out this experiment in real time. I think that we're in a decade, much like the 1930s and the 1970s, in the sense that it is clear that the prevailing model of economic policy has broken down, and it is not yet clear what is going to replace it. So There are competing models, competing theories. Economists are actively debating questions that were regarded as settled a decade ago, uh, questioning approaches to policy that were seen as absolutely state of the art, raising up new ideas or revisiting old ones that had been discarded. So, you know, it's a period of tremendous ferment. uh, And we've seen some of these competing approaches manifested in you know, certainly the Trump administration, which has an abhorrence for the idea of the ideas of experts and has sort of taken the view that what we need is a return to an economic nationalism uh, philosophy in which our nation is competing against other nations in some kind of zero sum game. Uh, this is a very old idea. Eerily, yeah, eerily yeah, eerily similar uh, to uh, uh, arguments in the 1930s uh, that did not end absolutely. well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and and then there's a suite of ideas on the left, uh, which overlap in interesting ways with some of President Trump's ideas, but also asserting that we need a new set, a new economic paradigm. And so I think where we go is is extremely unsettled. It's an interesting moment. Well, wherever we end up going, uh, we have your guidebook to where we've been. And I, I again, recommend uh, that uh, everyone take a look at it. It's Benjamin Applebaum, The Economist's Hour, False Profits, Free Markets, and the Fracture of Society. Binya, thank you so much for, for being on the it show. It was a pleasure. Thanks for talking with me.